are things wherein we differ with others. That's just, uh, I think, very uh, common sense, uh, understandable, that people would want to know why we do and believe and practice the things we do wherein we are different from what they believe and practice and do. And so those are the areas where wherein we must be prepared to give an answer. And so we have been studying on Sunday nights a series of lessons to help us be prepared to give such answer. Remembering, of course, the instruction of 1 Peter 3, verse 15, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. So as Christians, we should be ready. We're obligated to be ready. And, and so what we're doing in this series of lessons is we're trying to anticipate specific things that people would ask about, and it's logical that they're going to ask us about things that they don't see the same way and they don't believe and practice the same way. Our lesson tonight is very much along that line. I think we need to be prepared for someone who will say something of this order. Do you really think that it's right to, and this is the terminology they're going to use, do you think it's right to disfellowship from or to even, maybe they would use the expression, excommunicate people? We'll talk about that terminology in a minute. But basically, they're asking us about what we would refer to as the practice of church discipline. Uh, certainly, we are different in this regard because there are very, very few people in all of the religious world who practice what we think the Bible clearly teaches on the subject of church discipline. I'm sad to say that even among our own brethren, there are fewer and fewer who are willing to take the steps that the Bible actually teaches in regards to this practice. And so even some of our own brethren might say, well, I just don't think that's right, or I can't believe, or do you really think that that's what you ought to be doing? We need to be prepared to give an answer to explain why we engage in the practice of church discipline. Before we get into that study, we stop just to say thank you. As Jack already mentioned, we're grateful for the presence of everyone. Glad you've come our way. Always look forward to our time together. On Sunday, we have two such chances, on Sunday morning and Sunday night, and we're glad that you have a mind to to take advantage of both and to be here to encourage and help in the conduct of both of these services on Sunday. Thanks for being here and for all who are visiting. We're really glad that you came as well. Let's talk about this matter of church discipline. This is not a new subject to us. We've studied it before, but let's make sure we're ready to give an answer. Have some verses at ready recall. That's especially what we're trying to emphasize. What are the verses that we want to be able to call up immediately and give as an answer? First of all, I think we want to point out to people when we're discussing this question, let's talk about true biblical terminology. Uh, in our title, we use the expression disfellowship, uh, or sometimes our brethren will refer to withdrawing fellowship. Uh, and the Catholic Church has sort of made popular over the centuries an expression that's not biblical in nature. It is the expression excommunicate, uh, and sometimes you might also hear the word shun, a shunning that takes place. Well, the biblical terminology, and I think we're always best and safest to use bi biblical terminology in such cases, the biblical terminology is that we withdraw ourselves from, from certain individuals. And, and the reason why it's important to use that expression, that's the expression the Bible uses, if we use some of these other terms that don't have biblical basis, it leads to concepts and doctrines and practices that are in error. 
So in order to avoid that, I think we just want to stress what we're doing is what the Bible teaches. We're withdrawing ourselves from certain individuals under stipulations and conditions that the Bible teaches. All right? So that would just be a first point. Let's call Bible things by Bible names. It's withdrawing ourselves. Now, the Scriptures say that this action should be taken. And, And when we're talking with people about this, I think we want to stress we're doing this because the Scripture says so. That that this is what the Bible says. This isn't something that we dreamed up. This isn't a matter of our own invention. The Bible tells us to do this. The Scriptures say that this action of withdrawing ourselves should be taken toward certain people. For instance, those who sin and will not repent and those who are living immoral lives should have this action taken. And the text that Monty read for us earlier from Matthew 18, this is, an, this is one of those important passages that we want to remember. Matthew 18, beginning verse 15, If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, take, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Notice that here in the teaching of Jesus, these are words from Jesus himself. This is not the action of church discipline or withdrawing ourselves wouldn't be the first step in the process. It's certainly not an immediate or instant reaction we would take when someone who has done something wrong. There's a process and a concerted effort put forth to restore such an individual, to lead them to repentance, to get them to make right the wrong that they have committed. But ultimately, Jesus said it would reach a point if they wouldn't hear you personally, if they wouldn't hear you with two or three who would assist you in trying to uh, mediate that situation, if they wouldn't hear the whole church when the church addresses their wrong, if they continue to refuse to repent, he said ultimately you would treat them as a heathen man and a publican. Sadly, most religious groups do not take that action. And even when the most terrible of sins, the most heinous kinds of sins have been committed, most people in the religious world don't react, don't do anything. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, now this is another passage we want to remember. 1 Corinthians 5, really almost all of that chapter, deals with a situation in the church at Corinth. There was a very immoral man. We'll talk more about that as we go along in our study. But Paul said, 1 Corinthians 5.11, If any man that's called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an adulterer or a railer or a drunkard or extortioner, with such a one, know not to eat. And so, we would take this action. If a fellow Christian became involved in sin and refused to repent of that sin. Now notice, it's in the case where a person would fail to repent. We all sin from time to time. Uh, it's never right to sin, but it's a, it's a reality of our lives as we try to be the kind of people God wants us to be. Sometimes we fail. So we sin. We have to repent. This action of church discipline would be toward a brother or sister who fails to repent, refuses to repent. We would also take this action, the Bible says it should be done, in the case of false teachers and those who cause division in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning verse 2, 1 Timothy 6 verse 2, These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, from such withdraw thyself. 
And so we would withdraw from someone who teaches false doctrine, refuses to adhere to the truth of the Scripture. Now, this might be a person who is not, like we mentioned earlier, engaged in some form of immorality and won't repent. This might be a person who's living a morally pure life, but they have taken a false doctrinal position and even when there's been effort to instruct and correct them in that matter, they refuse. And so they're teaching this error and causing division in the Lord's church in doing so from such withdraw thyself. Again, I want to emphasize in this passage, this is 1 Timothy 6, verse 5, there's the expression that we're keying on. We withdraw ourselves. Notice it didn't say disfellowship or withdraw fellowship from. It certainly doesn't use the word excommunicate. It says we withdraw ourselves. We take our, we, 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 we sever our relationship with those people, especially socially, as we'll see here in a minute. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Notice there's a problem with doctrine. People, these people not adhering to sound doctrine. And so they must be avoided. So again, the Scriptures would say, take this action. Do it when people sin and won't repent. It may be a matter of immorality or it might be a matter of false doctrine and causing division in the church. Really, I believe we need to understand that this action could be taken in regards to any sin that a person becomes involved in and won't repent. Now, there have been some who have suggested that this action would only be taken in regards to a certain catalog listing of sins. And they might even suggest a listing of sins. They might go to a verse or two that mentions some sins that could lead to discipline. And so they say, really, it's only for these kinds of sins or only a few specifically named sins that we would withdraw from someone. That's actually not true. Any sin, you name the sin, but any sin that a person becomes involved in and won't repent, would lead to this action. Let me let me see if I could build a case for that conclusion. Here's another important verse for us to remember in this question of church discipline. Second Thessalonians three six. Second Thessalonians chapter three verse six. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. I would stress to you again, there's that expression, withdraw yourselves. There's that expression. But you do it from every brother who walks disorderly. This expression, walking disorderly, I understand has its roots in a sort of a military type of consideration. You, you imagine a troop of soldiers marching and they're in step. They're left, right, left, right. But there's one guy here, he's not in step with the rest. He's out of step. And that's the idea of walking disorderly, as is mentioned here. Someone who's out of step, he's not doing what he's supposed to do. Paul says that we would take this action against that brother. Now, he, he, he expands upon that a little bit later in the same chapter. In chapter 3, at verse 14, he says, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. If a man would not obey what Paul wrote in that epistle, we're talking about second, pay attention to this, because I think this builds the case that I want to suggest to you. In the epistle that we call Second Thessalonians, Paul said, if a man won't obey our words as taught in this epistle, then take this action. Note that man and have no company with him. 
Now, watch this. In chapter 2 at verse 15. Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by our word or our epistle. Paul said, you continue to obey everything we've ever taught you. Whether we wrote it to you or whether we taught it to you orally, you continue to obey all the instructions which have been given to you. Obey all the instructions. Well, if a man doesn't obey what's written in this epistle, well, this epistle says obey all the instructions. If he won't obey what's written in this epistle, take this action against him. Do you agree with me that those verses, when put together, would clearly suggest that any sin that a person engages in and will not repent would be a sin that could lead to this action of church discipline? So, again, the Scriptures teach us that we should take these measures. This is not something we dreamed up. It's not something that we're doing because we're mean, hateful people and we, and we like to do vindictive things toward certain individuals. That's not the case at all. We do this because the Bible says it should be done. Now, what is it specifically that we're supposed to do? Well, this process involves marking such individuals. What is this expression, marking people? What does that involve? The, the, the terminology comes from Romans 16, 17 that we already mentioned. Brethren, I, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. What is this marking anyway? Uh, I've had uh, an occasion in the past where someone has suggested that there's some sort of sort of mystery involved in this marking process that is, is, is sort of like, I, I don't even know, I, I would be afraid to compare it to things that other religious groups do, but they've, they, there's been this, the hint at least that this marking process is, is sort of a weird thing. It's actually not. The word here simply means to identify such a person, to point out a, a fellow Christian who's involved in in an error of one sort or another. So to mark them simply means identify them. Name the name. Let it be known. Point out these individuals. That's what we're supposed to do. Then, having done so, we are to have no company with that person. Uh, here's especially where we want to emphasize the idea that what we're going to do now is sever our social relationship with these people for the purpose of pointing out their error and hopefully motivating them to repent. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14, it says, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Emphasize here, have no company with him. That's what this involves. What we're saying is, in the past, we have been able to enjoy a pleasant relationship with one another. We've enjoyed having social company with each other. I mean, it's been a, you know, we very much enjoy that, don't we? Especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, the, uh, the good times and fellowship, uh, in, in all kinds of activities, uh, is very pleasant. But when we have a brother or sister who sins and won't repent, then we withdraw ourselves from them. In other words, we sever that social relationship. We no longer enjoy those pleasant times. Why do we do that? Because we want to do something and, and this is the last step in the process, as we already pointed out. We want to do something that will get that person awakened to the very serious nature of their spiritual condition 
we want them, as Paul even said here, to be ashamed of their conduct and make a change. We have no company with them. In 1 Corinthians 5, uh, again, that's that important text there, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, try to remember that one. When these questions and discussions come up, that's a chapter that's got to be studied, of course. Paul said, I have written to you not to keep company. If any brother, that, if any man that's called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, extortioner with such a one, know not to eat. He says it twice there in that verse. You don't keep company with him and you don't eat with him. That's very clear. I remember one time several years ago, uh, a, a brother in Christ was seen at a restaurant with someone who had become unfaithful and had been disciplined by the local congregation. And he was sitting there eating with him. He said, well, what was I supposed to do? Well, what you were supposed to do was you were supposed to not eat with them. Because that's exactly what the passage says. With such a one, know not to eat. And so we sever that social relationship for the purpose of emphasizing the need for this person to repent. So mark the individual. Have no company with them. But also, and, I, and this is extremely important, count him not as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. Through the years, uh, in when, when this situation arises, uh, I've had uh, experience with people who just have, who just expressed it along the lines of, that's just too mean. That's absolutely a hateful, horrible thing to do. I remember one time a, a young lady said, uh, uh, I've never seen anything like that. That's That's the most mean and hateful thing I have ever experienced. I'll never be back, she said. And she wasn't. But she was actually wrong. It's not done out of meanness or hatred or vindictiveness. It's done out of love. We care for this individual. And we know that the very most important thing about that individual is their soul and eternity. And we're trying to take actions that will lead them uh, to make things right with God so that they can be saved. This is done out of love. What's not understood a lot by a lot of people, I think, is that this is actually a hard step for us to take. It's not an easy thing, and it's not a thing we like to do. It'd be much easier, in fact, to just look the other way. It'd be much easier to ignore the situation and do nothing. That'd be lots easier. But that wouldn't be the loving thing to do. If someone's in a dangerous physical condition, we want to take steps to protect them from physical harm. That would be the loving thing to do, right? Uh, for instance, you might imagine here's a guy who wanders out into the street and he doesn't know a car's coming. And so you run across there and tackle him to get him out of the way of the, of the on, oncoming car. Uh, someone says, man, that's a mean thing to tackle someone. No, not in that, not in that uh, scenario it's not a mean. That'd be a loving thing to tackle that person, to get him out of the way of physical danger. So what we're saying here, although this is a harsh measure, it's done. It's understandably difficult. It's difficult for the person and it's difficult for us. But it's done because we care for their soul. We don't, they're not our enemy. We want to continue to admonish them uh, as a brother to try and bring them to repentance. In Second Thessalonians 3.14, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man have no company with him that he may be ashamed. We've read that verse a couple times already. But notice the very next verse. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so that's a very important step in the process that cannot be overlooked. We need to do that for sure. So, 
that's what we do. The Scriptures say to do this when someone sins and won't repent. We're going to be questioned about this. Most people in the religious world don't do that. And so they say, do you really think that's the thing to do? you really think it's right to take such an action against someone? Well, yes, we do, because the Bible teaches it against any person who sins, or any Christian who sins and won't repent. And, and here's what it tells us to do when that situation develops. I think a really important part of this discussion, and we've, we've been uh, suggesting things along this line already, but a very important part of the discussion, when someone asks us about this, we definitely want to get to the point of talking about why this is done. Why are we doing this? Well, first of all, we're doing it for the sake of the lost brother. In 1 Corinthians 5, remember that's that important chapter where Paul was dealing with a problem in the church at Corinth. They had an immoral brother who wouldn't repent. Paul said concerning that brother, deliver such a one to Satan. Now that's, uh, that's a little bit unusual expression there, but, it, but in the context you'll see, if you study that, more, that whole context more thoroughly, that this expression, deliver such a one to Satan, was that process of church discipline that he was encouraging them to take. He says, you do it for the destruction of the flesh that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's what it was about. Do this for His sake. Do this so that His soul will not be lost in eternity. You do this for Him. It's not easy. It's going to require a, a very unpleasant measure on your part. But you do it, Paul said. You do it for Him, that His soul might be saved. And that's what must motivate us. That's why we would do this. If we don't have that attitude of heart, if we're not doing it sincerely for the spiritual well-being of that particular individual, then we need to get our heart right. That's got to be the reason why we do it. We do it for the lost brother. Now, in that same chapter of Second Corinthians, or excuse me, of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, in that very same chapter when he said it's for the sake of the lost brother, he also says there's a benefit derived to the church that cannot be ignored. In that same chapter, he goes on and says in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. Think about this. Paul is saying that the purity of the church is at stake. Here's this. The church was allowing this unrepentant, immoral man to remain in their number. As a result of that, the church itself was infected. It was the influence and example uh, of the congregation was at stake. In fact, the, uh, in the very first verse of this chapter, he said, it's commonly reported that there's sin among you. Such sin is not even named among the Gentiles. No, and you get the clear picture there that the church at Corinth had had their influence badly damaged by the fact that this man was there and, and they weren't taking any measures to correct the situation. And so, these things need to be addressed for the purity of the church, for the reputation, for the influence of the church. In other words, these things can't be tolerated. And everyone needs to know that, the, that it won't be tolerated. The, the community at large needs to understand that, that we just don't allow unrepentant sinners to remain in our number. Paul seemed flabbergasted that the church at Corinth had allowed that situation to continue. But also, I think as a benefit to the church comes the lesson that uh, to us all, that such, such action, if we would choose to go that same route, such action cannot be tolerated and will not be allowed. 
And so there's a benefit for the church as well. Certainly the primary benefit is for the sake of the lost brother. But also for the church there is a benefit. Why do we do this? This is not an easy thing. And again, it's one of those things that makes us really considerably different from most other people in the religious world. Do you really think someone's, do you really think that that's what you're supposed to do? Well, be ready to give them an answer about that. Yes, it is, we're not, it's not because we like to do it, but yes, we feel it must be done. The Bible says to do it. And it tells us how to do it. And it tells us why to do it. We do it for the sake of the lost brother, for the purity of the church, but also, bottom line. If you just wanted a bottom line answer, then why do you do that? So I can't believe you guys, do you really think that's what you're supposed to do? You know what the bottom line answer could be here, and very simply should be? We do it because God said so. We've already looked, at, did you notice how many different passages in the New Testament address this kind of situation and tell us that we should do it? We do it because the Bible says to do it. We do it because God commanded it. Yes, it is the right thing to do. Uh, again, I think in talking about this with people, we want to stress the fact that we don't like it any better, any better than anybody else. Nobody wants to do this. No one takes any pleasure in the doing of this. But it's done because we know the importance of a human soul and the eternity that's coming. So we do it. All right, I hope that is, is a quick reminder of, of this subject because I think as we're trying to anticipate some of the things that we'll be asked about, we're going to be asked about that. And so there's, there, there's several passages that we've, that we've listed there that will hopefully be helpful. Again, get them committed to your memory so you can recall them when these discussions come up. We'll try to get these charts in printed form. Uh, you, you all have been quite interested in taking copies of those, and I'm encouraged by that. Also, I'll let you know that uh, these uh, chart files are being put into a PDF form. Some of you, that probably mean, doesn't mean a lot. It doesn't mean a whole lot to me either. But I have been able to put these in a PDF file. For those of you who'd like to get those and maybe keep them on your phone or have them on your computer, you just let me know. I can email them to you and you can get these charts in a PDF file. All right, thanks for your good attention. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If there are any here in need of making their life right with God, we've been talking about a situation where someone might be unfaithful to God. Maybe even a person that the church has disciplined because of their unfaithfulness. If that would be the case, then the right thing to do, and what we would beg you to do, is come back to God in repentance, confession, and prayer. If there's someone in our assembly tonight who's never obeyed the gospel but desires to do so, we'd be anxious to help you in that matter as well. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized is that gospel plan of salvation. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.